Well, first let me ask about this, the infrastructure campaign that you're part of here as the lead scholar, I believe. That's the title. That's yeah. the title. Yeah. And sort of what, um, I guess I have a lot of questions about the, the push for infrastructure investment, you know, from the point of view of someone who is skeptical of increasing car infrastructure. I feel like a lot of the push for infrastructure, not to start a negative note, but, but a lot of the push for increased infrastructure investment um, is not necessarily choosy about whether that infrastructure goes towards sustainable, uh, ethical, environmentally friendly, et cetera, kinds of you know, city friendly infrastructure or whether it's you know, highways and cars. Right. Well, um, you know, when I was invited to this thing, that kind of question that you're asking was foremost in my mind. And you find yourself thinking, well, I could stay out of it and as, as a way of saying that I don't really think these discussions are being held in, a, in an inclusive way that includes all kinds of ideas, including ones that haven't been on the table before. Or I could join in and see if I can work in some of those uh, less orthodox perspectives. And uh, I chose the latter, and I think it was the right choice. I had some opportunities over the last two days to work in some points of view that weren't being represented there. How did you do that? And, the, what did you say? And, uh, and I'll just insert that I, I've been very clear since I joined this thing that I was going to be retaining my uh, independent perspective, to, you know, and that would include, a, um, you know, reviewing the reports before they go out and making sure that I'm happy with my association with this. So. Um, about the points of view I threw in, well, um, there was a discussion of congestion and how uh, the, the, the room seemed to start to fall into the consensus that the solution is you need more gas tax revenue and that has to go into building more capacity and I could easily tell that the capacity being imagined here was capacity for automobiles. Mm -hmm. So um, I suggested that, you know, you can get more capacity for automobiles without building more lanes if you build smarter roads. And that this also can help create places that are more inviting to pedestrians, to cyclists. So I. I you know, gave some well-known examples like New York, mm -hmm. where um, they've used existing right-of-ways to uh, as opportunities for innovation. I was also pleased to be sitting next to Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa of Los Angeles, who was mayor from 2005 to 2013, because, you know, by sitting next to him, I felt like I was associating with myself with his record of restoring rail to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, he also was um, an advocate for bicycle lanes there. And so infrastructure can mean a lot of things and I think we, our mental model is highways, mm -hmm. but there's infrastructure for cycling, there's infrastructure for pedestrians. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm glad to say I think this group recognizes that. I think the whole spectrum was represented though, including people who are you know, have a long record of being advocates for more highways. Um, 
and so I just tried to, to distance myself from that. You also have done a lot of work sort of talking about mobility as, you know, mobility and access sort of are uh, inversely proportional. It, that, it seems like something that could come up in a conversation about yeah. congestion. I don't know if it did or if well, it did. We divided into breakout groups and we self-selected. So I was in one called Governance and Regulation. And I did try to bring in uh, the Federal Highway Administration rules, which seem to all begin with the assumption that the only way anybody wants to go anywhere is by driving. Now, I want to give the administration credit because it's recently done things like approved bike boxes. Um, and it's it's piecemeal bringing in other um, assumptions into planning but because it's a piecemeal add-on it still has a legacy that's very strong of assuming that um, for example uh, if you want a place to have uh, high accessibility it's going to have low mobility and you know from a pedestrian's point of view, that's nonsense, you know. Accessibility and mobility when you're a pedestrian is like one and the same. It only, if you're a driver... Well, in terms of speed, I guess. Yeah, um, right. Well, the, the prioritization of speed is a, is a driver's priority. It makes sense, surely, in, you know, rural areas and, and a lot of suburban areas. But in, in cities, um, if we value speed excessively we end up transforming the city into something that's not a city I, th I think I think we've suburbanized our cities in ways that are that make bad suburbs and bad cities well I want to talk a little bit about you know from your book mm -hmm. um, how the the anti-automobile campaigns of the early part of, of the 20th century um, how you see them connecting to today's Vision Zero campaigns or other campaigns for um, for a, not just sort of like for better bike lanes and better transit, but a, a kind of a fundamental uh, restructuring of the, the hierarchy of cars at the top. I like the way you put it, fundamental restructuring, because I think the question that gets skipped, and, and skipping it has huge implications, the question that gets skipped is, What's a street for? And if you step way back and ask that question, it turns out assumptions we come to this thing with uh, are, are really open to question. You know, like the notion that the priority in all streets or almost all streets should be motor vehicles. Maybe we could have something closer to an equal sharing of the streets or maybe we could have some streets be priority motor vehicles and some have other priorities but um, I think I I'm amazed at what we have seen in the last 10 years especially in terms of reimagining what streets are for you mentioned vision zero you know you could mention complete streets livable streets um, street reclaiming and all these sorts of things and they're beautiful and inspiring but a lot of them are working against a counter-narrative that says well you guys are, are are actually sort of fringe groups you're a bit you know you're not part of the mainstream here 
And I think actually what the history of streets has to offer, Vision Zero and Complete Streets and other movements like that, is uh, a chance to, to prove that actually they're the ones with the pedigree. They're the ones with the history. They're the ones who, whose uh, assumptions were the, the, the so-called normal assumptions of a century ago. So yeah, I think what history has to offer is a rebuttal to the sort of official story that says, well, you all are not official, you know. Do you see echoes of that in the Vision Zero fights today? Oh yeah, because, um, all right, when, when the automobile started appearing in large numbers in American streets almost exactly 100 years ago, uh, it was a safety crisis of incredible proportions. And the sort of mainstream response to that was, we have to make streets safe from cars, not safe for cars. That's not to say you couldn't have cars in streets, right. but it's to say they that shouldn't they shouldn't be a danger. And if there's a cost to making streets safer, that's a cost to be borne by society, including the automobile, the driver, in terms of whatever it would take to um, make streets safer. And Vision Zero is a recent... I would say rediscovery of the idea that safety is not just safety for drivers. Safety is not just how do we make speed safe, but you know, do we sometimes need to achieve space, achieve safety at a cost to speed? Um, so yeah, I think Vision Zero, in a way, has a really long history by other names. You know. Like, um, you know, a hundred years ago, it was called Safety First. And Safety First was the name, essentially, for Vision Zero. And they actually did some of the same things, which is actually count the casualties and, and aim for zero. Mm -hmm. um, well, back then when people were standing up against cars, was there... It seems like they were sort of looked at as anti-progress, anti-technology... Uh, that they're sort of throwbacks. Um, and I'm wondering, not so much with Vision Zero, um, but maybe more with, I mean, you've been skeptical of driverless cars. We're certainly skeptical of driverless cars. With something like that, I feel like there's another danger of sort of being like, well, this is the future and you're just clearly stuck in the past. Um, is there a way to be skeptical of, of the dangers of technology, of automobile technology, of transportation technology, without getting stuck in that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, what the historical example shows is that you you start to win when you get control of the story. Mm -hmm. So actually, the, the 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 winning side, if I can put it like that, at first were the critics because they were joined by the officials too. Like the first generation of traffic engineers was motivated in part by a wish to tame the automobile down for the sake of other street users but it was a very ingenious story that started being told by people who wanted more of a future for cars in cities and that was a story that said it's a new age mm -hmm. and they called it the motor age and when you when you say it's a new age right. that's a way of saying you know 
the way we've been doing it and, and the, the wisdom we've been coming to this with is all open to question now because we can say it's outdated. And I think actually that's a really powerful example of what we can do because we can say, oh, well, we had a day and a time when we thought, okay, let's see if we can make cities places where everyone can drive wherever they want to and park when they get there. But maybe that day is past now. Mm -hmm. And maybe the throwback is the person who says, we want to build cities where people can drive anywhere they want at whatever speed they want and park when they get there. And maybe the real forward-looking thing to do is say, we can't keep burning fuel at this rate. We can't keep, um, we, we can't have uh, tolerate a public health crisis that's caused by people being sedentary all the time. We can't, we don't want a future where children don't walk anywhere because it's not safe to walk anywhere. Um, and I think that's a positive story. And I also, I think it's also a technology-friendly story because technology can help make more livable cities. Um, because, for example, instead of widening a highway, we can use some technology to more optimally route the traffic. Mm -hmm. And if that means we don't widen a highway, or um, or it means we can divert traffic off of one street and onto another and make the street we divert it off of more pedestrian friendly. It's kind of like everybody's winning. So in a way it's kind of like anti-technology to say, well, we have traffic congestion, widen the road. That sounds almost sort of Stone Age in terms right. of its thinking. Um, we were talking also about the, the um and, and we've been talking about what t today can learn from the, the fights of a century ago. Um, I'm wondering what the automobile lobby has learned and what, what you see that they are, that they're doing now in the face of, you know, this kind of movement toward livability, et cetera. Um, whether you think that they are kind of trotting out there, it's new, you know, whatever, how they're responding and if there are echoes of the past in that as well. Oh yeah, and I think it's a it's a complicated response. So from some groups, I I might mention the American Automobile Association as an example. Um, there's a, a they're continuing in a long tradition of seeing themselves not just as a towing service, but as advocates for people to be able to drive with limited restriction, um, and you know they continue to speak a lot about traffic congestion and and to say we need to rebuild the roads and so on um, but they also and and the industry too is trying to to look like the people who recognize the future um, General Motors has gotten involved in urban motor automobiles like very tiny ones um, there's a term for it that I forget that they came up with they have a vision of a future city where people can park because the cars will sort of be like folding chairs that mm -hmm. collapse. And, um, and so, and they're, they're involved also in uh, driverless car development. And I don't want to say that all of that is 
bad, some of it's an appropriate response to pressure that, you know, should tell us, well, some constructive pressure has worked. But um, I do fear for the idea that the solution is to find a way to let everybody drive everywhere and park when they get there. It's just a matter of doing it in a more high-tech way. Because I think that, that whole notion is a flawed notion. Um, I don't think people really have... I don't think we should make the prevailing model a model that assumes that everybody wants to drive everywhere by themselves and park when they get there and park right at where they're going. I fear for what that means for livability, for what it means for the, uh, our cities, uh, for what it means for our public health, for what it means for climate change, and, and so on. We talked. We keep kind of calling this, I guess, or I keep calling this a fundamental restructuring. And I'm, I'm curious, actually, whether you think that that's accurate. I mean, the, the, what you're talking about at the beginning of the last century, what you talked about in um, fighting traffic, was a, a much more fundamental questioning of, because it was new, of the role of cars in streets and cities. And, and I wonder if you think that what, what is happening now really gets to those questions or whether it's just like oh can we just have a little space you know just sort of a you know we, we want some accommodation we want the buses to be a little better we want a little bike lane is, is it is it fundamental or is it fringe such an interesting question because I think that sort of dilemma that we're in right now in 2014 between fundamental rethinking or just fixes here and fixes there is the same dilemma that advocates of the automobile found themselves in, in especially the early to middle 1920s, when at first a lot of them said, what we need to do is take the street as it is and do some fine tuning. Things like um, optimize the traffic signal timings, right? Things. The same solutions we're looking Exactly, for. right. Yeah, the, fir the, first, <laughs> the first synchronized um, traffic lights to, for motor vehicles were timed in Chicago in 1926 and at the meeting I was just in they were still talking about getting the timing right but um, then there were others who began to say especially from within the industry stop talking about just retooling the streets to make cars fit in them better we need to actually reconceive this. There was an editorial in Engineering News Record in 1920. Um, an Engineering News Record then and now is the Journal of the Civil Engineers. Mm -hmm. And the editorial said, we need a fundamental mm -hmm. reconception of what a city street is for. Which was well, an... Like, I, I, that would be a headline that I would write today. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so you're just saying it's a different reconception. Right. And I, to me, in a funny way, that's kind of an inspiring line it is. because they're saying we can redefine things, and they did. Um, and they were they were very smart about it, and they were very imaginative about it. Um, they got out of just engineering diagrams and reports and started to tell stories, mm -hmm. telling stories about the uh, what freedom of mobility means telling story about 
stories about what the future can be, telling stories about sunshine and, and green space and open areas and how the car could deliver all those things. Um, I'm sure... It's still hard to get to those things without a car. Yeah, and you know what? I personally, just as one person, thinks there's plenty of good uses for cars. Um, I think where we went wrong wasn't in having cars. Where we went wrong was trying to rebuild the world so that's all you would need to get around. Um, I Sometimes I ask my students, what's the best paper fastener, a paper clip, a stapler, or a binder clip? And of course, they look at me like I'm the, like that's the weirdest question in the world because right. each one has its place. Right. And, you know, my point is, what, you know, you can't say what's the best mode of transportation. It's just a question of what, right. wh what's the tool you need for the job. Right. So, um, I think that the, the inspiring thing about the revolution that made the automobile the predominant thing is that it tells us how you tell stories in ways that capture people's imaginations. The probably the most amazing story ever told to in order to change mental models about cities was the Futurama exhibit at the New York World's Fair. Right. General Motors huge thing. And it was just brilliant because it presented a utopian future delivered by cars. And what I love about Streets Blog and Street Films is you all are presenting a vision that's also inspiring that says getting around without a car can actually be, first of all, possible, mm -hmm. and in other ways, very uh, attractive. One thing that I that I think we struggle with a little bit is kind of what comes first in this re-envisioning of streets and cities. Do you do you feel like there needs to be the campaign first that says like, hey, we need to slow everything down, we need to recalibrate the speed limits, we need to do traffic calming, or is it just we start using the streets as if that's what they're for, as if they're for play, as if they're for bikes, mm. as if they're for children? I guess which comes first, or can you do both at the same time, or is it too dangerous? That's, that's a tough question, and um, it's certainly possible to do these things in a way that annoys people and makes yeah. people think that those who want to offer us alternatives are cranky or, or think they're better than everybody else. or, or Yeah, they, they can certainly have that effect. Um, I think some of the success stories of recent years show good alternatives, like in New York, when they redefined what Times Square is for, um, that was actually a very controversial proposal. Mm -hmm. But the way they made it work was they said, you know what, let's just try it. Right. We'll make it totally temporary. We're just going to have like lawn chairs out there. Uh, we're not rebuilding anything. If you don't like it, we'll take all the lawn chairs out and it'll be just like it was. And the, a lot of the people who said this is a stupid idea ended up loving it. Um, and so maybe that's the best. And it's funny because my friend who lives there was like, it's so stupid, it's just lawn chairs. <laughs> and what does she think about it now? I haven't, we, we should check in. Yeah, you should check in, yeah. Um, so yeah, make, making it a, a temporary experiment and calling it that, yeah. 
might be and not telling people who drive that they're the enemy but saying to them you know what if you want to drive drive but if why don't you try this and see what you think let us know what you think about it right um you have talked about to get back to driverless cars i'm sorry not at all um you wrote an article saying that it that driverless cars risk answering the wrong question yeah but i don't i didn't see in the article where you wrote this is the right question it should be answering or if anybody's asking the right question uh consumers or auto industry groups or anything like that um what is the right question that they answer boy i really deserve that question because <laughs> that that was my whole point and i i kind of cheated by by av- avoiding that okay so, so it, it wasn't just that i didn't say it no in fact uh you're not the only one who asked me that oh yeah if that's not the right question then what is and um I'm hesitant to answer because I don't want to impose my answer. I'd actually like other others, uh, but you know, I can ask. And the, a question I'd like to ask is: first of all, step away from the questions we've inherited, like how can we drive with less congestion delay, and make it a more fundamental question, like what kind of city do we want? Or what kind of community do we want if it's not a city? Or um, what kind of public spaces do we want? Um, and that's a much more general question. And the advantage of asking it is it could start us down a direction that leads in a very different path. Um, so, I, th- I guess if I was pressed, I would say, what kind of city do you want? And if somebody said back to me, well, we're talking about transportation, not cities, I would say um, cities are actually a transportation solution. And the solution is, uh, uh, cities are a lot of things, but that's one of the things they are. And it's, it, a city says, one way to get to where you need to go is either to live near it in the first place instead of say having a half hour drive or to put people close enough together that they can share things efficiently like buses like streetcars Um, and that means that cities are can be places if we want them to be where people can share modes of transportation can bicycle can walk and the public health benefits, the emotional well-being benefits, the fuel efficiency benefits, among many other benefits, ought to, we really ought to be considering that, I think. Mm-hmm. And if, if autonomous vehicles, my, my, my problem with autonomous vehicles is they seem to be saying um, the question about how we get around is closed. We get around in cars. So now what we have to do is figure out how to use cars in ways that are more spatially efficient and more fuel efficient. And I say, maybe that question isn't settled and shouldn't be settled. Um, yeah. No, that's, that's a perfect place to leave that, actually. Okay, that's, good. Yeah, right. that's um, good. kind of gave me goosebumps a little bit. Oh, <laughs> delighted. Um, 
So driverless cars, um, I, I accept your the question <laughs> that you posed. Um, it, it's interesting because at first it kind of seemed like, well, the the problem that they're solving is that people don't want to drive themselves. People actually do like to drive, so yeah, that's yeah. you know, so that's part of it. But you know, the problem that they're, they 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 do solve a lot of social problems, social problems that we get from cars, like some safety problems, some emissions issues, uh, road space, all the things that you mentioned there, but. But, you know, your point is well taken that, that at that point we've sort of decided already that how we're going to get around is in cars. Is there a utility for driverless cars in all of those ways, safety and efficiency and all of that, in a, in the, in a world that still embraces and embra increasingly embraces other modes? This, this reminds me a little bit of, of medicine where, you know, I think a lot of people would agree we resort to pharmaceuticals too much, right? right? But there's a place, I think most people would agree, there's still a place for pharmaceuticals. So let's just figure out what the legitimate place is for pharmaceuticals. And I think cars are kind of like that. And um, maybe driverless cars can help us um, not have to, or, or not think we have to expand uh, the number of lanes on our highways every few years. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they can help us get more efficient use out of the existing road capacity. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe they can help us share cars more efficiently because when the cars got us to our destination, maybe we won't need to park it, it can go and get somebody else. Um, and I think all of those things would be wonderful. And that would be like figuring out like when do you need a pharmaceutical and when do you really just need to you know change your diet and get some exercise you know the 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 danger is once we have a pharmaceutical that takes care of something that we could take care of with a lifestyle change it's not like we've just fixed a medical problem we've also encouraged ourselves not to make the lifestyle change right so the same thing with uh, driverless cars. What if they give us an excuse to not make the lifestyle changes that we probably need to be making for a lot of reasons? Right. Um, and that's that's sort of my fear. And I actually feel like the the push for driverless cars is a little bit like the push for pharmaceuticals. It that says it's not the push for pharmaceuticals isn't just pharmaceuticals have certain medical benefits mm -hmm. it's there's no there's nothing in the human condition that we can't make better with a pharmaceutical that's kind right. of the message you get right. and um, I kind of fear that that's what some of the driverless car rhetoric is like you know there's like a Prilosec or something commercial that's like oh boy can't eat pizza and hamburgers and all of these things because they make you sick and make you feel awful take this drug right. and, it's, and it's like now you're going to eat these things that are not just bad yeah. for all of our bodies yeah. but are especially bad for your body right. and your body really rebels when you eat that but you know eat it and take this pill and in a funny way that pill not only doesn't solve the problem but it makes right. it worse right. by letting you not make the lifestyle change and I think that's that's true for the driverless car too or it's right. a risk for the driverless car exactly Okay, so functional classification. Yeah. So, it, are you trying to say that, it, that that classifying streets is not a useful uh, endeavor, or that they're class, or that there are too often classified wrong? It's sort of a higher 
level of service than they should be? Or I, I guess what is your... I don't think we can get away from classifying because mm-hmm. we there's always going to be there's always going to be a road that you know it makes sense to go faster on okay. because people are going farther distances or something like that and or to make sure that you classify it as slow. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. Um, but I think our criteria are weird. So the criterion seems to be assuming Beginning, beginning with the unquestioned assumption that the road is for motor vehicles and that it's the drivers of those motor vehicles that we want the road to serve. And not only that, but that ultimately everyone who wants to go anywhere on the surface should be going in a car. Um, because, all right, take um, the, the spectrum of functional classification goes from arterials, which are high-speed, low-access routes, up to uh, locals, which are sort of the opposite, high-access, lots of driveways and so on, but lower speed. But the, there's a constant, and the constant is the car, right? What if you changed the constant to a variable? So what if you said, um, we want to have a road that's car-friendly, at one end of the spectrum, and a road that has that's pedestrian and bicycle friendly at the other end of the spectrum. So that's a kind of classification too. Um, and there would be middle points in that classification, like this is a place for buses, bus rapid transit. Uh, this is a place for light rail. And so instead of the spectrum being, I mean, when they say low access high speed they mean low access high speed for cars and when they say high access low speed they mean high access for cars but that very high access for cars is actually making it lower access for people in other things like but when it's low speed it's usually high access for people right yeah right so i think and so it's kind of weird that the roads we the federal highway administration designates as low I'm sorry, low speed, high access, um, the pedestrian friendliness of the road is, or, or let me put it this way, they're still primarily thinking of those things in terms of for drivers, right? In other words, um, shouldn't there be a point at which high access, low speed means it's a pedestrian place? Like the ultimate high access, low speed route is a pedestrian mall. But their classification scheme doesn't include a pedestrian mall because at some level, unconsciously or consciously, they're thinking the only people getting around that we serve are drivers. Right. Right? You mentioned pedestrian malls, and I can't help but ask. You live in Charlottesville, right? Yeah. And you have a very functioning pedestrian mall, yeah. right? Yeah. I feel like the whole rhetoric around pedestrian malls is 89% of them have failed. That was a failed experiment. That doesn't work. That's a throwback to the 70s. We don't do that anymore. I don't understand that. I feel like Charlottesville is such a beautiful example of how great they are. They can certainly work. Um, and there's probably a lot of people much better qualified than I am to, to explain why they work. But I mean... You just happened to mention that. I knew that you lived in Charlottesville. Well, but like a lot of things, you know, a pedestrian mall is a component in a system. And so, like, j- 
just like you can give somebody an organ transplant and their body rejects it, that doesn't mean transplantation is a bad idea. It just means you That's have... Great <laughs> well, um, yeah, th th uh, this one's maybe a little bit medically, you know, too intense. <laughs> but in any case... Um, so Charlottesville's works because it's not just a place where cars can't go. It's a place where pedestrians want to be because there's restaurants, there's outdoor eating, there's places to sit everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the genius of this whole way of looking at streets was uh, William H. White, you know, who's, who, talk, who made a science out of small urban places back in the 60s. And that stuff's still true. I mean, look where we're sitting right now. It seems to be a very inviting place. Lots of places to sit. Um, we can face each other or be private. If we want to be private, we can be private. If we want to be sociable, we can be sociable. We've got shade. Um, so it's a system. And if somebody thought, oh, well, there's an urban park that's never used, so urban parks don't work, it'd be silly, right? And you just say, well, are there places to sit? Is it inviting? Can you be private if you want to be private? Is it in a safe part of town? Is it in a safe, yeah. yeah. And so, um, I guess pedestrian malls are, are like that too. Okay. That's a good answer. <laughs> um, well, I guess I didn't maybe um, finish asking about whether the current movement is um, a fundamental rethinking, etc. Because I, what I had written down was to ask where you think it'll get to, like how far you think that it will go, and looking looking into the future a little bit, if it's not all driverless cars, how much can we restructure this? How good can those other modes get in the face of the convenience of cars, et cetera? Or, mm. or do we actually make driving less convenient, more expensive, all those things? Yeah, um, well, I see alternative futures. Um, and the one I fear is the one where the assumption that we've already proved that people only want to get around by driving alone everywhere and going all the way to their destination. And we just have to make that more um, con consistent with environmental priorities and so on. Um, that's the f future I fear. And the future that I hope for is a future where that I 10 years ago I thought was almost impossible but now I I'm so encouraged by what people are doing including people like you that um, I've started to think maybe it's possible and this would be a future where um, kind of like in the middle of the 20th century we invented the automobile dependent suburb mm -hmm. and it kind of seemed far-fetched and a little utopian right. you know and we're kind of inventing the um boy i said automobile dependent i need sort of the opposite the i don't want to say automobile free independent okay so i i start starting to see that as a possibility in other words communities where um, we have some drivers, and those drivers have to pay a lot of attention because they're no longer the, the kings and queens of the road. And um, yeah, a, a place where we no longer 
reflexively assume that the only people whose needs we have to accommodate are drivers. So I'm, I'm picturing children walking to school and their parents aren't phobic about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm picturing children riding bikes to school. I'm picturing people not being afraid to give up driving when they're getting too old to drive because they've got a lot of other choices. And I'm picturing a lot of people who could drive but choose not to because they can walk out of their house and there's some form of mass transportation or there's enough bicycle and pedestrian friendliness that they can do that. And I do see that as increasingly possible, at least where people have congregated that want to do that. You know, like, you know, Portland, Oregon is an example. Um, And I think one of the things that will help make that possible is to try to change the narrative a little bit about who's mainstream and who isn't. What's what's radical and what isn't. What's crazy and what's not crazy. Um, Like, in the civil rights movement, one of the genius moves they made was to carry around a lot of American flags. You know, we love this country, love the principles it says it stands for. And in that tradition, that tradition of, of um, dissent, rebellion, and rights advocacy, equality, we, we are in the tradition of the American Revolution. And um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to say, you know, people who believe in complete streets, people who believe in livability, people who believe in um, uh, Vision Zero are, you know, they love their country and all that too. And, um, and I think there's, there are possibilities. And I think another thing that will really help that kind of future happen is to take a page from the motor age revolution of the 20s and 30s mm-hmm. and humbly learn from those geniuses mm-hmm. who said let's build a model of the future world and show people it right. let them see it and you know street films to me is like i mean you, no one can afford to rebuild futurama but right. you can do it with video uh-huh. And um, you're, you all have kind of done that. And uh, the, the views you get on some of your street films mm-hmm. are a sign that you're reaching, you know, all kinds of people. You're not just reaching, you know, some activists. Right. And that's huge. That's really huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those are all my questions, but I, I guess I'd like to know if you are writing another book or kind of what other projects you've got going on. My projects are smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, the book was an all-consuming project that... How long did it take? Well, I first proposed the idea as a dissertation proposal in 1993. Okay. <laughs> and the book was published in 2008. Um, there was parenthood, there was grad school, there were jobs there was teaching along the way. You weren't, you weren't writing it as a day Not anything close to that, <laughs> but there were, there were stretches when it was a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And I spent days and days on several occasions in archives around the country. 
And that's a scale of project I don't see myself undertaking again for a while. Mm -hmm. But I do, I, I'll tell you, a, a fantasy came true. If somebody had said to me when I was nearing the end of writing the book, what my fantasy for the book would be, mm -hmm. not, not just what my hope, my hope would have been that, you know, it will be, get some recognition and, you know, people will say, okay, he seems to know what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe, you know, get me a job. But then if they said, okay, that's your practical hope. What's your fantasy, your pipe dream, your, you know, your like total fantasy. Mm -hmm. I would have said, oh, well, my total fantasy is that people who want to reimagine what our streets and cities can be like will read it and re recognize that the history of this thing shows that it was not the inevitable side effect of everybody wanting to drive. Right. It wasn't because of an American love affair with the automobile and that we've we had a revolution in the 20s and anytime we want we can have a revolution again and that a lot of people would blog about it and say you know hey guess what it turns out that uh, um, it's not just that everybody wanted to drive everywhere that it, that it was a, a very careful effort by people who wanted a future for cars um, and that fantasy, I have to say, has come true because, um, so today I was at this thing, now I'm talking to you, and in two days I'm off to Indiana to talk to an MPO and to talk to um, Living Streets Bloomington, I think that's the name. And, um, I, and it's like, wow, these are the people that are making it happen. And so that's a dream come true. Uh -huh. That's really great. Great. Um, do you have a car? Yes, I do. Um, and I don't feel like a hypocrite. I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed, but I'm not. I don't feel like I'm a hypocrite because if somebody said, "What's your you know whole goal behind all this stuff?" I would say it's to make a future where people who don't like to ride their bike with cars whizzing one inch past them can get around where people who um, don't necessarily want to live in the downtown of a big city can get around um, and where basically you don't have to be a kind of hero to um, live a car free life because it's it, a car-free life is considered normal. And so I'm kind of non-heroic in that way. And, I'm, and so I'm working to make a future where non-heroic people like me, who don't want to, to have cars pass them by one inch while they're riding a bike, you know, because that scares the crap out of me. Um, that's, that's the future I want. And so until we're there, I feel like I'm living in the world that we inherited, but I want to change it. Um, how are the other options in Charlottesville? Um, not that good. Uh, we have a bus service. Um, there's also a free bus connecting the university with the downtown. Then there's a wonderful pedestrian mall. Mm -hmm. And there's some very walkable neighborhoods. Um, the walkable neighborhoods in Charlottesville tend either to be rather unsafe or rather expensive or no rather unsafe or very expensive and so people like me who want to find a um, affordable 
safe place tend to live outside of town. Um, I want to give my friends credit because I've got friends who live in affordable housing in town and so they're, they're my role models. But um, right now I could ride my bike to work and I would ride my bike to work if I could ride my bike without having cars come up behind me and scaring the crap out of me. Well, I'd put it that way if there was any hope of it being done. For right now, there's no sign, whatever, of anything like that being done. Although there are some well-organized and motivated advocates there. But so far, nothing on that scale. They've, they've achieved bike lanes. They've achieved um, bike boxes. Just this summer, we got our first bike boxes in Charlottesville. Uh, so things are changing. and um, like bike boxes just like don't belong anywhere near the top of the list. <laughs> I, have, I have no experience actually using one, so I don't have any idea. I mean, I barely even understand what the point is. You know, let's say you're behind 10, you know, when, when the traffic light turns, you're behind 10 cars. If you can weave between them and get to the front, you, your rightful place is in the front of that line. You shouldn't have to wait behind 10 cars. Yeah. You still have to weave between stop cars to, and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm the kind of person who just doesn't like riding in traffic. And I think there's a lot of people like me. So, you know, if you see what they do in the Netherlands or Denmark with how children and people who aren't fearless can ride around anywhere there, uh, I would really like to see that here. Yeah, have you been there? I've I've been to the Netherlands. Uh, I was amazed... The reason I've been to the Netherlands is that their transportation ministry had this crazy idea, which was, let's invite people from all over the world to come and talk about the transportation history and experience of their country, and we'll have our policymakers sit in and listen. <laughs> which kind of blew me away because I, as I told my host there, I said, you know, you have nothing to learn from us. We, we should be learning from you. But they said, oh, we want to hear, you know, your mistakes. We want to learn from your mistakes, too. I was like, okay, well, well, then we can talk about that. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about that. Yeah, but while I was there, I got to see the dedicated bike lanes with curbs, with their own traffic signals. I mean, they have limited access highways just for bikes. You know, it's pretty incredible. And, And it's beautiful because... To me, the most beautiful thing about it is children go wherever they want without grown-ups. And I was amazed to see that it's a priority to them, not just that children get around, but that they can get around at a young age without an adult. And they, they called it children's independent mobility. And I thought, I, I have children, and I thought, I would really, really love for them to have that. How old are your children? They're now uh, 13 and 16. And it's still, I'm sorry to say, pretty much I have to drive them everywhere. And I'm not happy about that. But we don't, I haven't seen a good affordable alternative. I'm a, I'm a non-tenure track faculty guy. And so my pay is not sufficient for us to like live in, in town, unless we lived in a marginal area that I'd actually rather not live in. Mm-hmm. 
weird children wouldn't necessarily be born. That's right. Them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. We would still be escorting them then, probably. Um, well, I'm always or often writing little things. Um, I've got a new chapter out in a book called Uncomplete Streets. Uh-huh. By... The book is called that? That's the name of the book is Uncomplete... No, it's excuse incomplete? me. Sorry. Thank you. Obviously, it's Incomplete Streets. Okay. Thanks. Um, from Rutledge. And I've got a chapter in there called Of Love Affairs and Other Stories. Uh-huh. And it's about how we were told a story about loving the automobile that was such a well-told story that we all believed it. Even the people who don't like cars mm-hmm. believed that we like cars. And that's a, an amazingly successful story, right. if you can do that. Yeah. And so the point is, let's, we need to keep thinking about the engineering. We need to keep thinking about the public policy. We need to keep thinking about the practicality and the public health and the costs and the benefits but in doing that it's I think essential that we not forget to, that we're ultimately telling stories right. and all that stuff I think has to be secondary to the story because until the story is well told you, you, you won't even get the attention of the people you have this amazing information to share with but I'm I'm telling this to the people who do this best, which is Streets Blog and Street Films. You are already superb storytellers. Um, Although, you're welcome, but I was about to say, although maybe there could be a little bit more freedom to indulge in a little bit of fantasy and fiction. Um, I'll give you an example. Ray Bradbury wrote a story in 1950 called The Pedestrian, uh-huh. and he ultimately incorporated some of it into Fahrenheit 451, uh-huh. and it came from an experience in 1950. He was walking in Los Angeles, and a police, you, everybody's heard stories like this. The police car pulls over, and, and they, they wonder if, what's going on here? You're walking. <laughs> You know, and that blew him away. And so he wrote a, a science fiction story called The Pedestrian about a world where, you know, it's abnormal to walk. And I think, let's tell more stories like that, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing some streets blog or street films that are indulging in a little science fiction, wow. you know, or, or that tell a love story like The Love Affair with the Automobile, only it's a different kind of love story. So somebody did this, I, I can't remember the setting, but I saw some video online where in New York, Lady Liberty was personified and ended up breaking up with the automobile. I saw that in one of the stories, in one of your articles. Okay. No, no it wasn't quite that. It was like... The car walks in on Lady Liberty in bed with like a bus. Oh well, that was a cartoon. Right, that was yeah, the yeah. same idea. Okay. 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 So it but there was also a film, and I don't. Oh, okay. This was probably related, but it was actually a human being in a Lady Liberty outfit, okay. dumping her lover, which was the automobile, in favor of transit. Wow. And it's okay. It's a little silly. 
you know, it's very lightweight stuff. There's a lot of humor in that. But there was silliness and humor in that 1961 TV show that introduced the concept of the love affair with the automobile. But it took off. Um, there was a show called the DuPont Show of the Week. And at that time, uh, DuPont owed a 25%, owned a 25% share. Uh, I might have that number slightly off. 23. 23%. Thing. I, I, I read okay. some the articles. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, Groucho Marx, right. who was on his third or fourth marriage at the time, tells this story in which the driver is a man and the automobile is a woman and the American man loves this woman which is you know weird in a lot of ways but yeah but but also mainstream for 1961 and and that was when the phrase took off and and the you know you can now actually see this on graphs because you maybe you know Google's engram feature it's like flat. There's a tiny blip when John Keats writes his book called The Insolate Chariots, which was a critique of the automobile. And his publisher came up with this line that it was about the American love affair with the car. So you see this tiny blip. And then GM retells the love affair story, not as dysfunctional, which was Keats's message, but as true love. And true love is something you will be irrational for. You will do anything for. Right? And so that was the point. And, and Groucho makes this quite explicit. He's, he's like, you know, there's all kinds of problems with the car, but we love it. And if you love it, there's nothing you won't do for it. And then Engram, it's like, it starts to rise and it goes vertical. It takes a few years, but it goes way up in the late 60s, in part because the critics start saying, yeah, we've got this American love affair with the automobile. And they're taking it as a given. Right. And um, that that's an incredible success story for uh, a story. Interesting. It, it helped that... Do you it write w- fiction? Do you want to write, a, write us a science fiction story? Um, I've toyed with the idea of writing about a utopian future, and I mean utopian, not dystopian, because it would be presented this way, where, you know, you would not have to ever get out of the seat of your vehicle, um, but it would... And it would be presented as utopian, not as dystopian, but but with irony, you know. Interesting. Um, but uh, I'd be. We've got a publisher for it. Whenever you're ready to write that. Streets blog, you mean? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I would love it if somebody did it. If nobody will, I might actually do it. <laughs> All right, got a deal. All right. Is there anything else I didn't ask but should have? Not that I can think of. You pretty much covered it. I think so. All right. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. Tanya's a pleasure.